We are kicking off a new series on the attributes of God, and, and I will tell you that several months ago I had a conversation with a, with a woman, with a mom in the church, and she's sharing with me about her adult son. And her adult son has walked away from the Lord. Sadly, it's something that many of us uh, can, can identify with. And this mom said to me, she said, he grew up in the church, he heard about the Lord, but he only heard of God as a God of love. She said, and then he, he got out of the home and he faced trial and hardship and brokenness and pain. And what she said was he had no way to, to connect or to, to fit what he was experiencing with a God who was only love. And she said she walked away. He walked away because it didn't fit. A God who was only loving didn't fit in the midst of his own pain and his brokenness, his own disappointment and frustration. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about that since she shared with me for months and months ago. And, and, and I've been thinking about how important it is for us as a church community to have a full scoped, an all-encompassing perspective on who our God is. Now, of course, our minds are limited, right? Uh, we can't have a full understanding of who God is, but the scriptures are, are rich and they are deep and they reveal deep truths about our God. And so we need to do all that we can to discover, not just skimming the surface, not, yeah, I believe in a God. Well, tell me about him. Well, I don't know. He's God. No, no. We need to dive deep to discover all that the Lord has revealed about himself in his word. See, as we celebrate our 14 years of God's work among us, as we look ahead to what God is is doing in the future, I want us to be a people that know God. Amen? That, That know him. See, it's far too easy for us to just follow a God of our own making, a God who, who we form in our own image. But if we're truly to follow and obey God, it's essential that we know who He is. We must understand God not as we want Him to be or as we think He should be or as make sense to us in our own mind, but as He has revealed Himself to be. And there are far too many people who walk away, who struggle because they say, well, I couldn't believe in a God like that or I couldn't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. And it's a failure to understand God in His fullness. Not as God as we would want Him, but God as He has beautifully and perfectly revealed Himself to, to, to us. So I want us to have a full scope. I want us as a church community to have a deep perspective on God and all of His attributes. And so for 12 weeks this summer, we're going to study the attributes of God. And our prayer is that we would get to know our great God better. That we would get to know Him so that we could follow Him and emulate Him. See, knowing God is certainly more than knowing about Him, right? Ultimately, knowing God is not learning a list of facts, not memorizing all 12 of these attributes. Knowing God is about relationship, about intimacy, about a personal covenant relationship to walk with God. But it is impossible to have a relationship with someone if you don't know who that person is. So you can read someone's online dating profile, and some of you have done that, and you can learn about a lot about somebody. You can see pictures, you can learn about their likes and their dislikes and the type of personality they describe themselves as. You can learn a whole bunch of things about a person, and that is important. But until you actually meet that person, spend time with that person, you will never truly know them. You might know about them based upon their online dating profile. See, knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God, but it is a necessary part of the process. We do have to know about God. We have to know who it is that we claim to believe in, claim to follow, claim to be 
walking with for all of eternity. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, says this. What then does the activity of knowing God involve? First, listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and works reveal it. Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown in thus approaching you and drawing you into this divine fellowship. So let me break that down. You want to know God. How do we know God? J.I. Packer says, first of all, read the word and let the spirit of God guide you. Secondly, be purposeful to learn the character and the attributes of God. As you are reading the Word, as you are listening to the Holy Spirit, let, let the Holy Spirit speak to you and take note of who this God is. What are His attributes? What is His character? What is His nature? Thirdly, then you begin to follow this God and walk in obedience with this God. That's how you know Him. And fourthly, He says, recognize and rejoice that God has approached you. That God loves you. That God has drawn you into relationship with Him. See, listen, we can only know God if He reveals Himself to us. You can only know God if He makes Himself known. You ever think about that? God could have hidden Himself. He could have created a world such that there was no imprint of His divine nature on creation. He could have never sent His Son. He could have never sent His Holy Spirit. He could have never given us the Word. He purposefully wants us to know Him. And He has given us everything that we need to know Him. He's revealed Himself through what theologians call the the general revelation and special revelation. General revelation means all that we can see and learn about God in creation. Special revelation is the 66 inspired books of His Word. Romans 1, 19 and 20 talks about God's general revelation. We have that verse. Paul writes there that that God's existence, that His eternal power, His divine nature can be clearly seen in the world so that all people are without excuse. You can look at the world and see that there's a God who exists. And if if you deny that, the Word says that you are without excuse. And yet... We can know that there's generally a God, but to know Him personally, to know Him as Savior, God must reveal Himself to you through His Word and through His Spirit. Author Pink, in his work called The Attributes of God, and the elders and I will be looking at that this summer, he says this, God can be known only as He is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through the Word. It is true that creation demonstrates a creator so plainly that men are without excuse. Yet, the God of the scripture can only be known by those to whom he makes himself known. And so if you know God this morning, be humbled and give thanks that he has shown himself. He has introduced himself to you. He has said, it's not enough that you just read my online profile. I'm going to show up at your door and we're going to spend time together. And if you don't know God this morning, yes, read and study and ask questions and keep your heart open. But at the end of the day, plead and cry out and say, God, I don't have the answers. I don't know the way. Will you show yourself? Will you reveal yourself to me? Give me eyes to see. 
Now, of course, God is boundless. God is eternal. His greatness is unsearchable. His ways are higher than our ways. And so the reality is we can never know God fully. We can never know God exhaustively. We can't know everything there is to know about God. But that shouldn't discourage you. I actually think that the exhaustive nature of God should excite you. So my family and I are leaving Thursday to go out and see the Grand Canyon. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen pictures. How long do you think it would take for you to see every part of the Grand Canyon? If you were there for a week, do you think you could see the whole thing? No way. How about a month? How about a year? How about a hundred years? How about 10,000 years? In 10,000 years, you couldn't see every nook, every cranny, every crevice, every cliff, every rock that God has made in the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Now, I don't know about you. But I'd love to have unlimited resources and time and energy to go explore the Grand Canyon, right? That's something that excites me. And so the, the unsearchable nature of God shouldn't intimidate you or put you off. It should excite you. And the Christian life is, is, is someone dropping you off in the bottom of the Grand Canyon and saying, you have the rest of your life to explore. You have the rest of eternity to explore the person and the nature of God. Growing, learning, exploring His vastness, His beauty, His glory. And so we're, we're going to begin, but like, you know, the, these, these 12 weeks this summer, that's like spending 12 weeks at the Grand Canyon. Like, you'll, you'll just maybe scratch the, skirt, the surface, right, by the end of that. So while we cannot know God fully, we can know Him truly. Okay, we can't know Him fully, but we can know Him truly because He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And that's central. See, knowing God is not a side venture. It's not a hobby. It's not some frivolous pursuit. Knowing God is central to our eternal life. Jesus himself said it this way in John 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. Paul says in Philippians 3 that nothing else matters. Nothing else matters in the Christian life in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to take a deep dive into the attributes of God. We're going to pursue knowing God, serving God, and emulating God. Now, when when, when scholars and theologians that are much smarter than me try to tackle this subject... They, they typically divide the attributes of God into two categories and they think about him as his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Now, here's what that means. It means that some of God's attributes he communicates to us. In other words, he shares with his creatures so that those attributes of God are reflected in us. So the attribute of God's love is a communicable attribute. It's been communicated to us because we now can take on and carry out that attribute. We can love other people. Other attributes are incommunicable. In other words, God does not fully share them with his creatures. They're not passed on to us, even though we're made in his image, right? So God, for example, is eternal. That's typically categorized as an incommunicable attribute. However, if I've already confused you, let me confuse you more. I don't think we should think about these as strict divisions. And so theologian Wayne Grudem suggests that it's probably better to think about his attributes in terms of those that are more reflected in humanity and those that are less reflected in humanity. See, because we're created in his image, we represent him, we reflect him. Both believers and non-believers carry the imprint, the, the image of God. 
And so to one degree or another, all of his attributes can be at least hinted at in us. Even if it's just a faint glimmer. So again, God's love. Certainly we can reflect love of God as we love other people in a a broken, uh, fragile way. But what about, you know, the eternal nature of God? You say, well, we're not eternal. That's true. There was a time in which we did not exist. There was never a time in which God did not exist. And yet, we are eternal in the sense that we will live forever. Both believers and unbelievers have a, have a soul that will go on in eternity, either in the presence of God in joy or away from the presence of God in sorrow and pain. And so in that sense, we, we do carry a, a glimmer of God's eternity. So the point is that as as we go through these attributes, we're going to study them and consider not only how each characteristic of God impacts our relationship with Him, but we will also see how each attribute, in more or less degrees, is reflected in us. Does, Does that make sense? Please nod, or I'll just teach the whole thing over again. Okay, so you're with me. Good. So, so quick... Quick, this is, this is a movie trailer, okay? And it, it goes fast. You're going to get a little bit of, of the plot line, but you have, to, you have to stay for the 12 weeks to see the whole movie, okay? So today we're talking about the consistency and the trinity of God. God is one being. There's lots of various attributes that exist simultaneously, equally in unity, consistently within the nature of God. We're also going to talk this morning about the fact that God is three persons. He is eternally exists as one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, next week we'll talk about the e- eternality and spirituality of God. God is eternal. He's self-existent. He is uncreated. He's a spiritual being. God's existence and his attributes are not dependent on anything else other than himself. God exists outside of time and space. He has no beginning, no end. He is spiritually present everywhere in the universe at the same time. Thirdly, we'll look at the truthfulness and faithfulness of God. All that God is, all that he does, all that he says is true. The very definition of truth. He is always faithful to himself. He always does what he says. He always says what he does. His promises are always true. Fourth, we'll look at the reality that God is unchangeable. The unchangeableness of God and the activity of God. What that means is that God's being and His attributes, His eternal plan and purposes are immutable. That means unchangeable. Yet, God actively interacts with creation. He responds to His creatures. He feels emotions. Fifth, we'll talk about the knowledge and the wisdom of God. God knows all things and He knows all things fully. God has all wisdom. God knows what is good and right and best for him and for his creation. He's perfectly wise. We'll talk about the power and the sovereignty of God. God is all-powerful. He has authority over all creation. He freely does all that he desires. And by his providence, he is purposely working for the good of all creation and for his own glory. Seventh, we'll talk about the justice and wrath of God. God is just. God knows the difference between right and wrong, and He is upholding right and punishing wrong in His universe because He hates sin, He hates evil, and He acts in divine judgment to punish all sin and evil. Eight, we'll look at His mercy and His patience. God is merciful to those that have rebelled against Him. He does not immediately bring the wrath that, that quite honestly, we deserve. He is patient with us, patient with those that are hostile toward Him. 
so that his plan of salvation can unfold, so that sinners can repent and, and come into life. We'll look at his holiness and his goodness. That means that God is good. He is right. He is pure in his being. All that he thinks, all that he does, all that he, he works is morally correct. He is holy, distinct. He's set apart from this fallen world, this broken, sinful world. Number 10, we'll talk about the peace and order of God. That God lives in a perfect state of harmony and order within himself. And he is working to overcome what, yes, is chaos in this world at times. Disorder. And he is bringing it all under his control and under his order in every square inch of the universe. Number 11, we'll talk about the love and the grace of God. That he freely gives love and kindness and favor to his creatures. He affectionately gives of himself to his children. He gives saving grace to sinners who don't desire it and don't deserve it. And lastly, we'll kind of wrap up talking about the beauty and the glory of our great God. See, God is the sum total of all that is good, all that is excellent, all that is beautiful, all that is desirable. The glory of God means the full splendor and supremacy of his being that invokes in us all and worship. Sound boring? Or are you guys excited? This is our God. This is exciting. This like puts the Grand Canyon to shame to explore the vastness of our God. So this morning we're going to talk, that was all introduction. This morning we're going to talk briefly, I promise, about the consistency and the trinity of God. The consistency of God means that he is one unified being who fully embodies and displays each of these Attributes. See, all of those various attributes that we just listed exist simultaneously and equally. They exist in unity together within the, the very nature and being of God. He is consistent within himself. Each attribute is equal and perfectly consistent. See, God is not like some of these attributes on some days and then other of these attributes on other days. It's, it's not like if you're acting one way, well, he'll, he'll, he'll display these attributes. And if you're acting another way, he'll display those attributes. But the other times, they're sort of on the back shelf. His love and his wrath are not opposed to each other. They exist in perfect, beautiful unity in the very nature and character of God at the same time. In fact, I would say that love actually necessitates wrath. If you love something fully and purely as God does, by definition, you must hate whatever is opposed to the object of that love. So these attributes are equal and consistent within themselves. And furthermore, they're equal in importance. Please, please don't make the mistake. Sadly, like this, this mom's son, who, who had placed Far too much importance on the fact that God is love. Now, is God love? Of course God is love. Is it at the top of my list? Yes, it's at the top of my list. But the scriptures would say that it does not supersede any other of the characters of God. God is not more powerful than he is holy. His mercy does not influence him more than his judgment. The attributes of God are consistent and they are equal in the nature of God. In fact... It is inconsistency, it is imbalance that leads to sin in us. Because, because they are out of whack, they are out of balance. Think about that for a minute. When you lust, when you lust after another woman that's not your wife, when you lust after a woman that you're not married to, 
you're attempting to love something, but what's the problem? You're trying to love something without regard to holiness. And those things are imbalanced and it creates sin, right? When you, when you sin in anger and you lash out and you lose your temper at your children or a co-worker, what's happening there? Maybe there has been an injustice. Maybe they do rightfully deserve some degree of, of, of punishment or, or wrath. But without full power, without full goodness, your anger is not going to be displayed in justice. It's going to be futile and, and broken and probably sinful. We can't carry out justice without the full power and goodness that God has. So God is fully balanced. These, these attributes are consistent and equal within him. But I, I want to talk now about the, the, the Trinity, what we call the triunity of God, the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. And we're going to cover it in like 12 minutes. So you might have to read a little bit more later. Look, the term Trinity, people have pointed out, does not appear in the Bible, but the doctrine of the oneness and the threeness of God is throughout Scripture. God eternally exists as one being, three persons. And so there is one God. God is one being with one essence, one nature. And that God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. Each person is distinct We're not talking about three gods. Christians do not believe in three gods. We're not talking about one God that has three different hats, three different roles. God the Father did not come and put on the Jesus hat and die on the cross. No, the persons of the Trinity are distinct. We're not talking about three roles or three identities. Now, people come up with various analogies, right? You know, like God is like like water and ice and steam, you know, that's not accurate. We're not talking about three parts of an egg. I used to do a thing with, with kids. I don't know, maybe it's helpful with kids. You guys can rebuke me later. But did you know if you cut a banana in half and you stick your finger in the middle of the banana and you run it lengthways down the banana, it will split into three equal parts? Did you guys know that? You can try that at home. Now, maybe that's helpful to give a child a, a beginning of an understanding of the Trinity. But our human mind, any analogy that we can come up with is not going to do justice. The best way to explain the Trinity is simply to say that God is one being and three persons. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, try, try this. Okay. You are one being, correct? And you are one person, correct? One being, one person. God is one being, three persons, right? He's slightly more complex than you and I. Okay, so let's begin with the unity of God. God is one. The oneness of God is at the very foundation of the old covenant roots of our faith. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, the Shah that the Israelites have proclaimed for thousands of years. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Lord is one. There is one God. And so, yes, there are three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the persons of the Godhead are in complete unity. Jesus said when he was here on earth, he said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because there's unity. Now, what what are the implications for you and I as we try to live life on earth, as we try to follow God? What are the implications of the oneness of God for us as his people? Well, let's just begin with the fact that we worship and we serve one God and only one God. Amen? 
And the oneness of God reinforces what I said earlier about His consistency. Just as His attributes are not somehow in tension with one another, or they do not contradict one another, we can say the same thing about the three persons of God. They are not in tension. There's no conflict. There's no contradiction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is one God in complete unity with Himself. But additionally, the oneness of God and His unity have implications not only on who it is that we're following, but I think the oneness of God have implications on how we follow Him. Okay? This is what Jesus taught us. John 17, He taught that God's people are to be unified as one, just as God Himself is unified as one. Jesus said this, and we, we read this passage a few weeks ago in our series on life in exile. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, talking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, meaning his earthly disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them. And you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So we, so we have this reality, this truth that we hold, and it's a, little, it's a little complicated, it's a little mysterious. God is three persons yet unified as one being. Listen, that is the pattern for Christians. That is the example for Christian unity. And that is the means by which Christians can be one. Right? There are thousands and thousands upon thousands of Christians around the world. In Southern York County, in Pennsylvania, in the U.S., in North America, in the Northern Hemisphere, but in the Middle East, in, in South America, and, and Africa, and Europe. And, and thousands upon thousands of Christian saints that have now gone to be with the Lord. How is it that we could ever be unified as one people? Right? It's not, it's not based upon the fact that we're all worshiping in the same building. It can't possibly be based upon the fact that we like the same music. Some of you didn't even like the music that we played this morning and yet you're here. Right? It's not because we part our hair on the same side. It's not even because we hold to the same doctrinal convictions about every detail of the faith. Christian unity is not based upon ultimately doctrinal solidarity because there are finer points of the faith that we disagree with. Again, some even in the same room. We are unified as one. Why? Because we are unified with Jesus Christ. Christians are unified as one because we are unified with Christ and He is united with the Father and with the Spirit. We don't have to create or build or force or push Christian unity. Christians are unified. All we can do is ignore it or walk away from it or, or, or break it in its reality. But we are one. If you call Jesus Savior, if you've trusted that He has died for you and risen for you, that you are forgiven, that you have eternal life, if your hope is in Him, you are unified with Him. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. And he said, I and the Father are one. And so if you are in Christ, you're in the Father. If you're in Christ and the Father, you're in the Spirit. And guess what? So is every other person in this world, in this room. And so is every other Christian since the history of Christ. 
that calls him Savior. We are unified as one. That is the pattern. That's the example. That is the means by which we can display Christian unity to the world. And as Jesus said, the response, the reaction, is that they believe that Jesus was sent from God. And so God, give us grace to walk out the unity that you have in heaven that you can bear out in us on earth. So, God is unity, God is one, but we also hold and believe that God is trinity, God is three. Now, the doctrine of the trinity is only whispered in the Old Testament, but it is shouted clearly in the New Testament. We clearly see the trinity beautifully and powerfully demonstrated even in the life of Jesus. When Jesus, the Son of God, was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, we see the trinity. And so Jesus goes down to the Jordan River with John the Baptist, the last Old Covenant prophet, to be baptized, to be washed in the river. Now, he didn't have any sins to be cleansed of, but he said he was going to be baptized to fulfill righteousness. And so he goes down into the water to be baptized, to, to lead an example of righteous living. He comes up out of the water, and do you remember what happens? Is it that the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on Jesus? The heavens opened, and God the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, the gospel authors claim. In bodily form, the Holy Spirit came like a dove and rested on Jesus. And now the Son of God was empowered for ministry. And then what happened at that moment, the scriptures record the disciples that were there, who who have left for us historically reliable documents, said that an audible voice came from heaven. As God the Father rang out from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so we see... Jesus the Son, receiving the power of God the Holy Spirit, hearing the audible voice of God the Father, the Trinity at work, displayed for us as Jesus is launching His ministry. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing since before eternity began, before the foundation of the world, operating in unity, operating in Trinity together, and now manifested In that few moments on earth manifested in three persons in the life of Jesus. And so Jesus, at the end of his life, he called his followers, now you too be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We read a few weeks ago as we we considered ourselves exiles on earth, we heard Peter's words, one of the closest disciples of Jesus who heard that audible voice. Peter addresses his readers as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We are elect exiles on earth by the Trinity, for the Trinity, because of the Trinity's work in our lives. Now look, rather than me try to further explain the nuances of the Trinity, I'm going to let an ancient creed do the heavy lifting for me. And so there's this old dude named Athanasius, an ancient father of the faith from the 3rd and 4th century. And he championed the doctrine of the Trinity against heretics who were claiming varying ways that the Trinity was not true and promoting heresy. And Athanasius devoted his life to defending and explaining the doctrine of the Trinity. And and we have what we call the Athanasius Creed. And he may not have authored it specifically as we have it today, but it's grounded in his work and it's named in his honor. And so if you will permit me, I would like to read for you the first half of the Athanasius Creed, one that is widely accepted by the, the Orthodox or excuse me, by, by the Christian 
uh, faith in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Protestant Church, this is widely accepted as orthodox belief. Here's the creed. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Thank you, Athanasius, for that positive beginning. Now, this is the Catholic faith. Catholic there meaning the universal, the universal Orthodox Christian faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. By the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable, immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated an immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Holy Spirit is Almighty. Yet there are not three Almighty beings, but there is one Almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. The creed goes on with another long section, I'll spare you, explaining Jesus as fully God and fully divine. But this creed that that for centuries, Christians from different denominations, different continents, different languages have said, this is what we believe about the Trinity. And, And it says those who desire to be saved should think this way about the Trinity. And so I commend that to you. Okay. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? I'm trying to get up. I'm trying not to lose it with my kids. I'm trying to live the Christian life. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to hold on to Jesus in the midst of trials and temptations and discouragement. How does the Trinity impact our life? A couple of implications before we wrap up. I I think the Trinity has significant implications on how we think about salvation. How we worship God, how we pray to God, how we seek to serve God here on earth. We serve a God who is one and who is triune. And so we 
think about God the Father who created us, who loved us, who set a plan in motion to redeem us, who sent His one and only Son to rescue us. And then we think about it, we pray and we worship God the Son who willingly for you became a man, lived day in and day out as an example for you, resisting temptation, died on the cross as your substitute, rose from the dead to give you new life. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity that is returning one day for you and for his world to restore all that is broken. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He he takes the work of Christ and he says, now it's yours. Now through faith, the work of Jesus is applied to you. And the Holy Spirit births faith in your heart. And he sustains your faith through all of your trials of life. And he grows you in holiness. He empowers your prayers and he equips you for life and for ministry. Please don't think about God as, a, as an indescript blob. And, and don't also, don't only think about God as Jesus. Don't only think about God as the Father or as the Spirit. We must follow, serve, worship, pray this triune God. One of the most beautiful things about the triunity of God is that it means He has been For all of eternity, he has been loving. Think about this. God did not need to create humans so that he could give or receive love, so that he could experience relationship. God has had eternity, since eternity, has had love and relationship within himself. God is eternally eternally selfless. Think about it, if God were only one, and there are many monotheistic conceptions of God who see God as one, if God were only one, he could not experience love, he could not experience relationship apart from creation. But our God is eternally loving, eternally existent in relationship. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this, in the Father, Son, and Spirit, is a God who is not essentially lonely, but one who has been loving for all eternity, as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for for this God at all. It is at the root of who He is. Man, I hope that that, I hope it blows your mind, but more than I hope it blows your heart. At the root of who God is, is loving others others. See, loving relationship is at the very nature of this triune God. And there are some here today that love relationship and we flourish in relationship and and we're extroverts. And and when I'm not around people for for like 12 hours, I get discouraged. I get depressed. I got to be around people. It's how I thrive. It's how I flourish. And if you are like that, if you are wired that way, that is the reflection of God who at his very core is a God of loving relationship. Some of you are hesitant to trust yourself to others in relationship. Some of you don't feel safe with other people when you're truly known and you want to be isolated. You want to be set aside. Friends, please know that God is safe. You can trust Him. He didn't create humanity in some sort of, some sort of strange experiment to see what love would be like, to see how relationship would be like. He, he's been doing relationship. He's been loving the persons of the Trinity for eternity past, and He can love you in the same way. 
And so if relationship is hard for you, come to him and know that you're safe, know that he is trustworthy, know that because of Jesus you can know the Father, you can have the Son, and you can walk in relationship. This is the God we follow. This is the God we serve. This is the God we love and we worship. And so as the worship team comes back up, as we close proclaiming together our faith and our belief in this great triune God, My hope and my prayer is that as we begin this series for the next 12 weeks is that God would stir in us a hunger to know Him, to know about Him, yes, but to know Him in relationship as a God of love and grace and mercy and goodness and justice and beauty and power and knowledge and wisdom. And so I want to ask us to recite another creed. I don't think we've ever done this at Living Hope Church, but we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. A creed that dates back to the 3rd and 4th century that Christians have proclaimed together as a way to declare their faith and their hope in the triune God. It was originally written in Latin, and so there are various versions. And so the version up on the screen might be a little different than what you said as a kid or what you've recently read But I would ask you to to use the words on the screen. So let's stand together and proclaim this ancient creed. Proclaim our faith in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to worship and sing together what it is and who it is that we believe. Proclaim with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.